0: Christian Medical and Dental Associations hope you enjoy today's chapel message. Thank you guys for allowing me to come and share with you. Uh, Something unique about Discovery is we try to do something experiential and to engage people. So Connie's got something he's going to bring around to everyone uh, that has to do with our message this morning. This Sunday is Palm Sunday where Jesus rode in as the king. And so this morning, I want to just take a moment to look at Jesus as our king. Uh, In my house, we named our youngest son, Henry. Henry Xenophon Matthew Carell. Henry is a family name through generations through the Carell family. And so we named Henry and and we knew that was going to be his name. But then when we looked into it, we found out it meant king of the house, ruler of the home. And we were a little worried that that would go to his head, and it did. Uh, He is quick to tell anybody. Uh, One of the siblings told him that's what his name meant, and he is quick to to tell anybody that he's the ruler of our house. Uh, At seven years old, he feels like he is the king. But the reality is, if you guys, you should have a little crown there. Feel free to make your crown. Um, It's significant because we are all kings and queens of something, Right? Something that you are great at, something that you have nailed. Perhaps you are the king of your job, that you are, are nailing this, what you are doing here at CMDA. Perhaps you are king or queen of your home, of parenting, of making the perfect stripes on your yard in the summer. Perhaps you are the king or queen of just getting the most perfect Spotify playlist. I don't know what it is, but each one of us is a king or queen of something, Something that we've just nailed, something we've perfected, something we've excelled at. Henry is the king of our house, if you ask him. We are each a king of something. And so this morning, we have these crowns to represent that, uh, what we have made ourselves a king or queen of, where we have put our passions, our, our time, our efforts into as we go into looking at Jesus as our rightly king. To do so, I want to look at two passages, or three passages this morning, one from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. And the Old Testament one begins in Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters of the Old Testament. And this gives us this vision of Jesus the king, the vision of the king in his heavenly throne. Isaiah 6, verse 1, opens with this. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The opening of this, Isaiah is not just giving us an ear marker of the, the year to the King Uzziah died, he also gives us some cultural insight. King Uzziah had been king for 52 years, and he'd been a great king throughout that time, and so until the end where he had started drifting away from God, he had been a great king following God. There had been consistency and comfort, and now because of leprosy, he has died, and the kingdom finds themselves in turmoil. The kingdom is now placed in the hands of his 25-year-old son, and the northern kingdoms are wanting to come down and attack. And so there's this time of great fear that Isaiah is letting us know. This time when Uzziah died, when everything here on earth seems up in turmoil and scary. Perhaps that might be what's going on in our own life, whether it's in our our culture or uh, how much our culture has changed. Maybe it's in our own home with uh, medical procedures and tests. It might be a time of anxiety and fear, a time where on our earthly world, everything seems up in turmoil And Isaiah is making sure that we know at this time when everything seemed to be anxious and turmoil, there's a king on the throne in heaven. There's a king that is reigning and has continued to reign and will reign forever. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I love this scene that his robe, the king is there on the throne and his robe is coming down and is filling the temple. Everywhere you look is the robe that is just continuing to flow and it's touching Isaiah's shins as it comes around him. It makes me think about the story in Matthew where the woman reaches out to the fringe of Jesus' garment, to the edge of his robe, and in that edge is great power. So imagine being in this temple and filling, that is filled with his robe, filled with God's power, that is touching Isaiah, and he's in that presence. He's in the presence of the Lord, full of his power. The passage continues, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. I love this in this picture. This is the only time that we see the seraphim. It means to burn. And this, this winged, six-winged creature is, a, is an amazing thing if you think about it. And it's a great example to us. Because these are angelic beings. They have created. They have not sinned. They have not fallen like mankind. They have not done the sins that you and I have done. And yet, look at their response in the presence of God. With two, re- with two of the wings, they, they fly. Uh, and with two of the w- wings, they cover their eyes in reverence to God. That they are created in heaven. They have never even sinned and done those things. They've been in God's presence their entire existence. And yet, they can't even look at the Lord because he is so holy. Because of reverence. So, two, they cover their eyes. And with two, they cover their feet. Again, not fallen, not full of sin, not blemished like you and I. And yet, they still cover their feet because of the presence of who they are and who are there near. And then with two wings, they fly back and forth, and they do whatever the king commands. What an amazing example for us, right? That if we could be in reverence, ah, in awe of God, that we could humble ourselves and see our sin, and that we could also be a servant to the Lord. And so these two seraphim, they call out to one another. Verse three, it says, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. As you guys know, I'm sure, holy means to be set apart. And in, in, in whenever in the Bible something is repeated three times, it, it's the sign for perfection. So they are proclaiming that God is perfectly set apart. They are proclaiming this over and over again. And then the king speaks, and the walls tremble and is filled with smoke. The temple is full of his robe. The walls are trembling. His presence is there. Can you imagine being Isaiah. Just being among this presence that and how would you feel? Isaiah feels unholy. It says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Isaiah is a temple scribe, he's a good guy. He's not this horrible sinner and, and murderer, and yet he's still in God's presence is Woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to be here. And so, God sends instructions. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Again, another great example for us. There is nothing Isaiah could do that would make him worthy to be in the presence of God. All he did was confess to see that his sin to see who he was and he's in the presence of God and he doesn't deserve to be there <clears throat> and instead God takes it upon himself and sends a seraphim to cleanse him to take away his sins to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for there's nothing that we could do to deserve to be in God's presence and yet he sends God he sends Jesus to die on the cross to take away our sins so that we can be in the presence Of the Lord. This is the King. This beautiful vision in Isaiah chapter 6 just gives us a glimpse of this King, of his might and his strength and his power up in heaven. And then contrast that with when we jump into Philippians chapter 2, who, being very nature God, being this King with the robe and full of this power. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Imagine this king was willing to give up all that to come to earth. For why? To seek and save the lost. There's a story in Luke chapter 19 uh, of a tax collector. He's he's short in stature, and he's a prominent tax collector in the area. Everyone hates him. The the Romans don't like him because he's a Jew, and the Jews don't like him because he collects his taxes for the Romans. He's in the city of Jericho, and we're introduced to him in Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, and because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. He was the chief tax collector. He was the top dog. He had other tax collectors that worked for him. So he was in this position of authority, and yet everyone hated him. The crowds have come. They've heard about Jesus healing the two beggars outside of Jericho. And so they want to see Jesus. They want to maybe be healed themselves. They want to hear his teachings. And so the crowds have come and they've gathered. And Zacchaeus is trying to get up. And no one will let him in. They'll push him aside because everyone hates the guy. And so even though he's a prominent man, even though he, he has other tax collectors working for him, even though he is the king of this area, even though he's the king of the taxes, king of the wealth, he climbs a tree just to see Jesus. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Perhaps Jesus was familiar with some of the, the leadership here in town, but probably more. This is Jesus' divine ability to know who Ezekiel is. To know Zacchaeus's heart to get to know the, Jesus. And he says, I'm coming to your house. You can imagine the gasp of everybody. What? Why is he going to his house? Why why would he go? Why would he go to see Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is awful. We hate Zacchaeus. The passage continues, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to being the guest of a sinner. Everyone would have loved a chance to be with Jesus. The crowds are gathered, smushed in, just to be able to interact with Jesus, just to be able to get him to look at him, to to wink at him, to smile, to to reach out and touch him, let alone to have dinner. They would have paid uh, thousands of dollars to be the one that would have Jesus at their house. And here Jesus is going to the house of Zacchaeus. So Jesus and Zacchaeus head that way. And the crowd follows. And you can imagine the crowds outside the house grumbling and muttering. They're angry, they're jealous, they're upset. Why is he wasting his time in there? Why doesn't he come out and be with us? But on the inside, inside of the house, Zacchaeus, who's been the king of Jericho, more or less, who's been able to ask anyone and anyone at any time for a tax, and they have to give it. Who's had all the power and wealth in the area? is now meeting the one true king. Says that, but says Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. And Zacchaeus is reiterating two different laws here. The law of Moses, which is if you've cheated, you have to pay back four times. And Zacchaeus knows this. He's a, he's a, a pious Jew, and he knows this idea, and so he knows that he has robbed people, And he needs to pay them back four times. But he also has the law of Christ. To love your neighbor as yourself. So he says that he's going to give away his possessions and give it to the poor. The passage continues. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus declares that Zacchaeus... Is saved. He proclaims that, that Zacchaeus has been redeemed because he came and met the one true king. Jesus' mission was clear here, to seek and save the lost. To seek and save those that are tax collectors, to seek and save the, the sinners that he walked around with, to seek and save you and me. This was his mission. This is why he is willing to leave the throne and humble himself and come down and be a man who even died on the cross for each of us. Just like each of us, we are a king or queen in our, in our own domain, right? So was Zacchaeus. Everyone cowered to him. Everyone gave him whatever he wanted. He had all the power, and he was willing to let go of his own kingship To follow the one true king. It wasn't about him anymore. It was about Jesus Christ. It was about the king of kings. And so he gave back the money and he reached out to the poor. He paid back four times what he needed. And he lived a life that was worthy of the king of kings. Not a life pursuing his own kingship. It's a great example again for each one of us. Where are we the king and queen of? I mentioned some fun things that you might be a king and queen of. Maybe you make the perfect steak. Maybe it's a, the Spotify playlist. But, but also there's things that we feel like we're king and queen, that we have pursued everything to, to reach, that it comes at a cost. And perhaps that, that kingship might be things that we're not too proud of. It might be addictions. It might be uh, bad habits. It might be things that we are maybe too proud of. Maybe our position or uh, our, our status. Things that we have pursued and put aside God to pursue these things. And so this morning, I want to encourage each one of us, myself included, to make Jesus our king. As we look at this passage of, of Palm Sunday, as you, as you go to church this Sunday, and they'll probably read it, and talking about Jesus coming in, and the crowd is cheering, and the crowd is waving palm branches, and they are cheering out that he is the king of kings, that we would be excited that we've set aside our kingship, our queenship, for the one true king. The Philippians passage continues, chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This king left all that to come down and die on a cross, but he conquered death. He, there was an empty tomb, he rose again, and because of that every knee shall bow Every king and queen shall bow to the one true king. So that passage from Palm Sunday. In John chapter 12, we catch a glimpse of what it was like when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's headed into Jerusalem fully knowing what the future holds. Knowing that this week would come and Passover would be at the end of the week. And that he would be sacrificed as the ultimate Passover lamb. And yet he still came into Jerusalem. It says, the next day the great crowd, the crowd that had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. He is the king. And while many earthly kings, the things that we've pursued, will often take from us, the kings will often take from their subjects and, and will take taxes and take wealth and take freedom, as do the things that we've often pursued, set aside Jesus and pursued these things in our life that have taken our time, taken our, our worth, taken our pride. The one true king gives that all back, that he gives us our worth in Christ, that he gives us our freedom in Jesus in the truth, that he gives us a deep relationship With Jesus and with other believers, that he gives us our value, which is in him. For so long, we often pursue our own kingship, our own queenship. And what if we stopped and put that aside and pursued the one true king? This morning, you have a crown as a reminder I want to encourage you to take it with you today and just be a reminder of perhaps where you are pursuing your own kingship and maybe if you need to set that aside to pursue Christ. Or perhaps it's a crown to remind you of the one true king. Of the celebration of Palm Sunday this coming Sunday that we can celebrate the arrival of the king as he goes to march forward to his death and his resurrection. If you'll pray with me. God, we thank you that you are the one true king, and we thank you that you've allowed us to be part of this kingdom. God, we right now lift up our crowns as kings and queens in our own right, and God, we give them to you. Let you be glorified. Let you be praised. Let us proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. You are the king of Israel, you are the king of our lives. God, we lift this up in your name. Amen.